Uh, by the way, if this is your first time here, we're glad that you've chosen to worship with us. And one of the things that we would want you to know about us is that if you attend here on a regular basis, you'll find that we study our way through whole books of the Bible, and we are currently working our way through the Gospel of John, a biography of Jesus that was written by one of his closest friends. At the end of the book of John, uh, he tells us why he wrote what he wrote. He tells us that he's writing so that we would come to believe that Jesus is the Savior that, that we've all been looking for. He's writing so that we would come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That is, God uh, come in flesh and blood to give us eternal life so that we can live in a personal relationship uh, with God forever through Christ. So take your Bible, uh, paper or digital, either one is fine, paper is better in my opinion, but find your way to John chapter eight, and as you do, would you bow with me and let's ask the Spirit to speak to us in this word today. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive what we're about to read and discuss. Uh, so that we leave this place today strengthened and encouraged to hold fast to the word of Jesus uh, in the midst of hardships and difficulties that we might face in the coming week. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So follow along as I read John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. It's a rather long uh, passage, but... Uh, I believe in you. You can hang with me on this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him and said, well, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say uh, you shall become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, hey, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This isn't what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So why do you not understand what I say? Well, it's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, then why don't you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered and said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. 
There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my words, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, then I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he, was, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said, you are not yet 50 years old, and, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now this phrase, the truth will set you free, is probably the most misquoted Bible verse of all time. <laughs> I mean, you see it plastered on plaques and walls of college campuses. You hear it quoted by politicians. You hear it in the movies. You hear it by motivational speakers. It's a slogan for all kinds of religious causes. It's a rallying cry for social justice. Just out of curiosity, I went on the internet and I typed in, the truth will set you free, and that phrase pops up over a billion times. Over a billion, at one billion, 40 million to be exact. That was as of yesterday. But I can safely say that most often, that phrase is ripped out of its original context. Now, there's no question about it. The search for truth and the search for freedom occupy center stage in, in history. And there, there's nothing more important than truth, and there's nothing more important than freedom. But the question is, what is the truth that Jesus is talking about here? Now, people search for truth in different ways, or they say, well, truth is relative. They say there's no such thing uh, as a truth that's true for everyone. Now, I mean, it may be true for you, but it's certainly not true for me. So what is the truth that Jesus says sets us free? And then what is, what is freedom? I mean, when, when we hear the word freedom, we tend to think of political freedom as in uh, liberty and justice for all, or the give me liberty or give me death uh, kind of freedom that our country was founded upon and which we have fought uh, to defend. But what is Jesus talking about here when he says the truth will set you free? And what's the relationship between truth and freedom? Now, these are very important uh, questions. They're not, they're not abstract philosophical questions, but they're, they're questions that are extremely practical and applicable to our daily lives as followers of Jesus. And that's what I wanna look at this morning as we pick back up here in chapter eight. Now, Jesus is still uh, at the center of conflict and controversy, and that goes all the way back to chapter five when he healed a lame man uh, on the Sabbath, and that alone made the religious leaders wanna kill him. And since chapter five, uh, really at every turn, the crowds following Jesus have been divided over who he is. Some say he's a great prophet, uh, some say that he's a crazy man, some say he's a half-breed Samaritan, as we see here. Others think he's a demon-possessed man. And Jesus seems to make things worse by making these outrageous claims that 
set the religious leaders' heads on fire. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, will never be hungry again. He says, I'm the living water. Whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have uh, oh, excuse me, I, I skipped down. I'm the living water. Whoever comes to me and believes in me will never thirst. Then he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here he says, if you abide in my word, you'll be my disciple, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, he's saying, I am sinless. Uh, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, and anyone who keeps my word will never see death. Uh, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And at that, according to verse 59, they picked up stones to try to murder him, but he, but he slipped away, made a quick getaway. Now, because of the length of this passage, I'm not going to work all the way through it, making comments on every part of this heated argument that's going on here. Much of it is a repeat of the arguments that we have looked at in earlier chapters. But Jesus has been making these outrageous claims about who he is. He is God come in the flesh. Where he's from, he's from the Father in heaven. What he's come to do to save us from our sins and to give eternal life to all who believe in him. And here he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now that is the greatest, highest, holiest expression of divine self-reference ever made. He claims to be pre-existent. He claims that there has no beginning and has no end, and that sets their heads on fire. Now here's what I want you to understand. All of these claims, the truth of all of these claims provide the foundation for what Jesus says here about truth and freedom. And he's saying that, and, and it's Jesus and only Jesus that can define truth and freedom uh, the way that God would have us understand them. So we're gonna jump in, but before we do, there's a problem in this passage that we have to, uh, that we have to look at, that we have to settle. Here's the problem. In the midst of all this conflict and controversy, John doesn't want us to miss the fact that there are people who are coming to believe that Jesus is God's Messiah. So in John 8:30, the verse right before the passage this morning, John says, as Jesus was teaching, many were coming to believe in him. Many came to believe in him. So Jesus said, to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, in the midst of this conflict, there are people who are coming to believe in Jesus, and in verse 31 and 32, Jesus addresses these new believers, telling them that if they continue to follow him, and if they continue to hold fast to his teaching, then they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Okay, so far, so good. Verse 33, though, says, well, they answered him and said to him, and then what follows from verse 33 all the way to the end of the chapter is this heated argument and this heated debate. This, uh, they're attacking him and accusing him. So, most commentators, the majority of commentators and preachers that I've ever heard preach on this passage say 
that the angry tone that continues from verse 33 to the end of the chapter shows that the people, John says, believed in Jesus, evidently were not true believers. They were people who professed faith in Christ, but when they heard something they didn't like, they immediately jumped back in and started to attack Jesus. They, they might have had a head knowledge of Jesus, but they didn't have heart knowledge. Now, I find that very hard to believe, and here's why. Because John says that to believe in Jesus is to have eternal life. John 1:12. but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus said in John 6, 47, about as simply and as clearly as you can possibly say it, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. John says that belief in Christ results in eternal life. For John, there is no such thing as head knowledge and heart knowledge. For John, there is only belief that leads to eternal life. For John, believing in Jesus is saving faith. Now, don't get me wrong, there is some validity to the fact that people can believe in Jesus with a kind of mental assent, uh, acknowledging that, yes, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, or died on the cross and rose from the dead, yes, yes, yes. But they, they've never made any kind of personal commitment to Christ. They have a head knowledge. And now, I, I understand the categories, and there's some validity, there's legitimacy uh, to some of that. The only thing is, that's not the way that John talks about belief. So when inspired scripture tells us that some in the crowd believed in Jesus, then we should understand that, 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 understand that to mean that they were saved people. They are not professing Christians who believed with their head and not with their heart. They're saved people, okay? All right, so then how do you explain verse 33? He's, he said to the Jews who had believed in him, and they said back to him. How do you understand that? Well, you need to look at the larger context. Remember, Jesus has been speaking to a divided crowd going all the way back to chapter five. Different people have different opinions about him. And since chapter five, there has been this back and forth argument going on between Jesus and the religious leaders in the crowd who are attacking everything that Jesus says to try to discredit him. So here in John 30, excuse me, in, uh, in verse 30, John tells us that there's some in the crowd who are coming to faith in Jesus, and Jesus speaks to these new believers about the path uh, that leads to truth and freedom, and as he does, his enemies break in and interrupt him as they've done all along, and as they do, Jesus fires right back as he has done all along. It's like this. Imagine that there's a presidential primary in South Carolina. <laughs> Which shouldn't be too hard to imagine. But let's say that there's a presidential candidate and he or she is in a large outdoor speaking venue. There's a large crowd there. And as he's speaking, he looks over and he sees a whole bunch of people holding up signs with pro-life slogans on them. And let's say, and sadly this is, this is kind of hard to imagine today, but let's say that the candidate is pro-life 
And so in the midst of speaking to this large crowd, he looks over uh, to them and he's encouraging them to stay true to the cause. But in that same crowd, there are some pro-choice people uh, and and as the candidate addresses the pro-life folks, the pro-choice people interrupt him and begin to antagonize him and insult him. Now think about that. If someone later recounted that event, like later uh, when the story is discussed on the news, would anyone conclude that the pro-life group really wasn't pro-life? That they only professed to be pro-life, but they, they weren't. No, that's absolutely crazy. We know exactly what's going on in a situation like that, so we should know exactly what's going on here in John chapter eight. Jesus is speaking to these new believers. As he does, the religious leaders break in and interrupt him as they have done all along, and therefore he re-engages with those enemies of his. That's what's going on. So it's very important to see that Jesus is talking to true believers, and he's calling them to a deeper life of discipleship, calling them to abide in his teaching, to hold fast to him and his teaching, and to learn to put what he says into practice. Now, he doesn't go into detail here about what it means to abide. Why not? Because he gets interrupted. So he's gonna pick back up on what it means to abide in him and in his word in greater detail in John 15. But for right now, I wanna look at three questions this morning, and the three questions are these. What does Jesus have to say about truth? What does Jesus have to say about freedom? And what does Jesus have to say about himself? And we're gonna answer those three questions, and then we'll look at the application, and that's what I wanna focus on this morning, and I'm mainly going to deal with verses 31 to 36, all right? So, first of all, what does Jesus say about truth? Now, to me, there's something very compelling in this phrase, you will know the truth, because everyone kind of wants to know the truth. Throughout human history, people have been convinced that behind the complexity of the universe, there is some unifying principle, uh, some unifying order, some truth that ties everything together. And in the East, this truth is thought to be some kind of spiritual force that we discover and access through mysticism, through mystical experience. In the West, uh, people have tried to discover the truth behind the universe uh, in science, through science, and, and, and looking for some kind of mathematical formula that explains everything. So in the West, we try to arrive at truth through our intellect. Today, oddly enough, there's this marriage between mysticism and, and science, and you see that in, in, uh, in movies like Star Wars. But Jesus makes it clear that truth, real truth, is not a mystical force, it's not found in some mathematical formula. Ultimate ultimate reality is a relationship with a person, with him. And he says, if you hold to my teaching, if you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth. In other words, truth is not something you experience through yoga or trying to uh, access your inner child. Uh, The truth that Jesus talks about is here is not something that you discover through science. It's not simply information and data. It's not something you uh, get just through theology. It's, It's not simply right doctrine. It cannot be reduced to a formula or integrated into a calculation. It transcends propositions. The truth, as Jesus defines it, is someone to be encountered, experienced, 
and followed. Basically, he's saying, commit yourself to me and you'll know the truth for which you've been searching. Because when you look behind the universe to find some unifying principle that holds everything together, what you're really looking for is me. Later, he will say it straight out. He will say, I am the truth, the way, and the life. Now, the practical benefit in knowing Jesus personally and experientially as the truth is that we learn to see life as it really is. I mean, knowing Jesus as truth means you can see behind all the illusions and the facades and the false promises and the unreal images and the lies and the deceptions that bombard us every day. Knowing Jesus as the truth gives you the ability to recognize the lies that you see and hear it from all sides of the media today. And as you grow to know Jesus as the truth, when you flip on the TV, when you surf the net, when you open some slick magazine, you begin to realize that life is not found in the next new thing, new house, new car, new clothes. Life is not found in makeup and mouthwash. Uh, not that mouthwash is a bad thing, you understand. Uh, some of us, uh, well, anyway, uh, could use that. Grandkids will let you know if you need it. So anyway, uh, the world uh, promises that we find life in products and possessions. Um, but as we hold to the truth that we find in Jesus, we come to know that we will not find real, lasting, satisfying life in anything this world offers us. But we come to know as we grow. In other words, it doesn't just happen in, all, in one magic moment. It's a process but as you hold on to Jesus, as you continue to see life through his eyes, you begin to look at yourself differently, and you begin to uh, see other people differently, and you begin to listen to the news differently. Your values and, uh, change. Write down this passage, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. The same John that's writing this biography of Jesus, he writes a letter to some Christian friends, and this is what he says. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Isn't that good? I mean, doesn't that make the point? To those who believe in Jesus, to those who follow Jesus, abide in Jesus, God gives understanding so that we can know him and this word is know personally and experientially that he is the truth. Now, there is a great example of this in, a, in an old book that really is a classic. It's probably, it's probably one of my uh, top 20 books of all times, and it's the book Out of the Salt Shaker Into the World by Rebecca Manley Pippert. Excellent, excellent book. Now, in this book, uh, she tells the story of a boy named Sue. No, that's, no, wait, wait, that's a Johnny Cash song. Um, of a woman named Sue, a student, and, and, and Sue is very bright, very talented, uh, and she was agnostic, but she was very, very interested in uh, Christianity, but she struggled with a lot of intellectual questions about the faith, and so uh, one day she comes to Rebecca, and uh, Becky, and, and she's plagued with doubts, and she says, I can't pray to receive Christ because it would be dishonest, so what should I do? And so Becky suggested, tell God, or the four walls, if that's what you think you're speaking to, but tell him you want to find out if Jesus is truly God. 
and that if you could feel more certain, then you would follow him. Then read the Gospels every day. Every day you read, something will probably hit you and make sense, and whatever that is, do it as soon as you can. And so Sue kind of gulped and said, well, that's radical, but I'll do it. So she started having what she later called pagan quiet times, praying to the walls and reading her Bible, and this is what she said happened. One day I read the Bible, I read in the Bible, if someone steals your coat, don't let him have only that, but give him your cloak as well. And for whatever reason, that verse hit me between the eyes. So I said to the four walls, listen walls or God if you're there, I'm gonna do what this verse says if the opportunity arises today. Now, I wanna remind you that I'm trying to do two things here. I'm trying to do things your way in order to find out if you exist and if Jesus is really who he says he is, amen. Well, the day went by and I forgot the verse. I headed to the library to continue working on my senior thesis and just as I sat down at my designated desk, thesis desk, this guy comes up and starts yelling at me. He told me that the school hadn't given him a thesis desk, so he was gonna take mine. Everybody knows how important your thesis desk is for your work. The school only gives you one, and so I started yelling back, and pretty soon we caused quite a ruckus. But it was when he glared at me and said, look, I'm stealing it from you, whether you like it or not, all of a sudden it hit me. I just looked at him and I moaned, oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> and I thought to myself, look God, if you're there, I do wanna know if Jesus is God, but isn't there some other way of finding, finding this out besides obeying this verse? I mean, uh, couldn't I tithe or get baptized or give up something else? But don't take my thesis desk. I mean, with my luck, I'll give up the desk and then discover you don't exist. <laughs> Sue says, but I couldn't escape the fact that I'd read that verse the very same day someone tried to rob me. Before, I'd been amused to see how Jesus aimed for whatever was controlling the person in his conversations with the people in the Bible, but now it didn't feel so funny. So I took a deep breath, tried not to swear, and I said, okay, you can have the desk, and I headed for the door. The guy grabbed me by my arm and asked me why in the world I would let him have it. I told him he would think that I'd flipped out. But I, was, I told him I was trying to discover if Jesus was really who he claimed to be. In order to know if Jesus was really the way to God, I was attempting to obey the things he told us to do. So I've been reading the Gospels, and today I read that if someone tries to rip me off, I was supposed to let them and even throw in something extra to boot. All I could see were the whites of his eyes. So I'm gonna give you the desk, but don't press your luck about the something extra. <laughs> Then he said, why in the world would Jesus say such a crazy thing? Now listen to this. She said, if there's one thing I've learned from reading about Jesus and meeting these Christians, it's that Jesus wants to give us a whole lot more than a thesis desk, if we had let him. I think the basic idea is that knowing Jesus makes us rich, not owning possessions, so the thesis desk is yours. Now here's the sentence I want you to think about. Sue said, Becky, as I said those words, I just simply knew it was true. I knew it from the inside out. 
I felt kind of like God was saying, well done. That's the way I want my children to live. And Pippert says, there were a lot of things that Sue didn't understand about being a Christian when she became one. But there was one thing she did know, and that was to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, we must do what he says. Now, that is exactly what Jesus is saying here. And if it works for an unbeliever, how much more would it work for someone who's already trusted Christ? He says, if you hold to my teachings, if you put what I say into practice, you are really my disciple and you will know the truth. Meaning, like Sue, you will know Jesus Truth is true by experience in your daily life, in the decisions you make, in the things you begin to do that you didn't do before, in the things that you give up or leave behind, you will know him from the inside out. So here's what Jesus says about truth. He says you can't know the truth without a commitment to do what he tells you to do. But when you commit yourself to putting into practice his word, you will know him personally and experientially, and you will live free. Question number two, what does Jesus say about freedom? That's why Jesus goes on in verse 32. He says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We're, we, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How, how do you get off saying you will become free? Now remember, that's the response of the unbelievers who interrupt Jesus as he speaks to these new believers in the crowd. But think about, when you think about this, I mean, if there's anything that's generated as much or more searching in history uh, than truth, it's the quest uh, for freedom. And again, most of the time when we hear the word freedom, we, we have a hard time divorcing it from political free, freedom. Um, like Franklin Roosevelt's famous speech before Congress in 1941 where he gives a, a four-fold definition of freedom. He talks about uh, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And according to Roosevelt, all those things could be had through democratic justice, uh, democratic government and social justice. And that's kind of the way that most of the time we think about freedom today. It's political freedom. Now, even though the Jews in Jesus' day would not have expressed it in quite the same way, they were thinking kind of along the same lines because their response to Jesus was political, religious uh, in nature. They were saying, hey, look, we can't possibly be slaves. We don't need to be set free. We're children of Abraham, for goodness sake. And God promised that the, that the children of Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. And how can we be a blessing if we're just a nation of slaves? No, 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 no. We're not slaves. Never have been slaves. Now, that's crazy. I mean, it's just not the truth. Politically speaking, they had been slaves in Egypt. Uh, they had been slaves seven times in the book of Judges. They were enslaved to the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians and now for all intents and purposes, they are uh, slaves to the Roman government, but they didn't think of themselves as slaves, even though everybody else did. They were Israelites. They were Abraham's descendants, God's chosen race, a free people. They couldn't be slaves, but Jesus isn't talking about slavery in that sense. Verse 34, he says, I tell you the truth, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. 
In other words, according to Jesus, the most vicious form of slavery is not bondage to some oppressive political system. The fundamental slavery of the human race is slavery to sin. It is the failure to be what God created us to be. And sin is rooted deep in our hearts and it is expressed in the evil habits uh, that, uh, that we can't break, the selfish desires that we have to gratify, and the shameful guilt that we live under. Those are our real masters. Sin manifests itself in what we call hang-ups, hang-ups like fear and anger and guilt and pride. And Jesus is saying that I can set you free from those things. You see, the religious leaders were enslaved to all those things, sinful pride, prejudice, jealousy, anger, malice, murder. They wanted to kill Jesus. And the whole point of the argument from verse 37 all the way to 47 is that Jesus is saying, the fact that you want to kill me proves that you are not true children of Abraham. It proves that God is not your father. No, your father is the, is the one who was a murderer from the beginning, and that's the devil. Now, here's the kicker. Just as the religious leaders could not bring themselves to believe that they were slaves of men, neither could they see that they were slaves of sin. And the same is true today. We might have freedom of speech, but we can't control our tongue. We might have uh, freedom of worship, but our worship is not exclusive to God because we chase after idols. We might have freedom from want, but we're not content with what we have. We might have freedom from fear in many cases, but we don't enjoy peace of con conscience. And so, and so having political freedom does not guarantee spiritual freedom. And there's another kind of freedom that I think we need to add to Roosevelt's famous four, and that uh, is a fifth freedom that people clamor for today, and that's the freedom of choice. The freedom to do whatever I want, however I want, uh, whenever I want which is very intoxicating, but Jesus says is utterly wrong. That is not true freedom, it is slavery, and here's why. Whenever you choose to do wrong, whenever you choose to go against God's word and God's plan for things, whether it's in attitudes or actions, you become a slave to the wrong you do, and you gradually slip under its control. It pulls you to deeper levels of wrong, and later when you wanna quit, you find you can't. People say, oh, I could quit if I wanted to. Really, try quitting and see how, how successful you are. I mean, you've heard the well-known saying about smoking, oh, it's easy to quit smoking, I've quit 100 times. I mean, well, the same is true with a hot temper. The same is true with pornography. The same is true with alcohol. The same is true with adultery. I mean, people who end up in an adulterous relationship, they never thought that they would end up there. They were just a little innocent flirting. One lie leads to another. One indiscretion leads to another indiscretion. And then, 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 then it's, and you just think, well, it's easy to quit. But then you find out you've gone so far that you can't quit. You can't give it up. Why? Because when we sin, when we practice sin, we become slaves to sin. And when we sin, we're not just going against some social convention invented by people. No, we're going against how, uh, how God's created things to be, going against God's order. Uh, when we sin, we're like elephants trying to fly. We're like a fish trying to live out, out of water. I mean, all you have to do is throw a fish up on 
dry land and say, look, you're free, you're free. And the, and the fish knows it, it, it wasn't created for dry land. It was created for water. And you see, we were created for God. We were created to be sons and daughters of God, created to live our lines, our lives in line with his design, with his plan. And true freedom is found only when we are living within that design, only when we are living in line with God's truth. True freedom is not the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. True freedom is the freedom to become all that God created us to be, and there's only one person who can make that possible. There's only one person who can set you free from slavery to sin, and that someone is, is, is someone who does not share our captivity to sin. Only a person who did not and does not share our, our captivity to sin can set us free from sin. The Only the person who can say, verse 46, who convicts me of sin. Only the person who says in verse 29, I always do what pleases God. Only the person who can say, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, then you'll be free indeed. You see, Jesus tells you that only he can make you free. He tells you that when you believe in him and when you hold fast to him and his teaching, he makes you into what he is, a son, a daughter of God. You become a child of God that abides in the house of the Father's house forever. Verse 35, what an, what an awesome promise. So what Jesus says about himself is simply this, only I can set you free. Only Jesus can set you free from the power of sin. Only Jesus can set you free to be all that God created you to be. And what is that? To become more and more like the most free person that ever lived more and more like him. Now here's the application. To experience freedom from sin slavery requires more than saving faith. To experience, experience freedom from sin slavery requires more than saving faith. In John 8:32, Jesus promises that you'll know the truth and you'll experience freedom only by abiding in his word. It is experiential knowledge of the truth of God's word, personal uh, 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 knowledge of God's word. It's like, it's like what Sue talked about. It's what she experienced. Now, uh, it, it does come in little uh, pieces like she experienced, but, but it doesn't come all at once at the moment of salvation. It doesn't happen overnight. Let me say this before I forget it. Saving faith sets you free from the penalty of sin. Only a growing faith, an abiding faith, can set you free from the power of sin. Saving faith sets you free from the penalty of sin. Only a growing faith can set you free from the power of sin. And that should be no surprise because, I mean, it took years for us to develop uh, uh, the habits and the sins and the things that hang us up. It took years to develop those things, and so after listening to one sermon or being in one Bible study or praying a handful of prayers, it just doesn't happen that way. It takes time to grow in a relationship with Jesus so that his ways become our ways and his thoughts become our thoughts. It takes time reading and meditating on who Jesus is and reading the words of Scripture, not just words on a page, but reading them as if Jesus is speaking directly to you through the words on the page. 
And it takes time cultivating a life of prayer where we're constantly talking to Jesus about what's going on in our lives and learning from him how to respond to the people and events of our lives. Now I can tell you, God didn't stop pointing out wrong attitudes in my life the moment I became a Christian. 55 years later, God continues to show me where I need to change as I continue to follow Jesus. And even in studying for this message, God put his finger on a particular kind of bondage that I've been tolerating in my life. Like, for example, do you ever have thoughts like this? You ever think, man, this is more than I can take. I mean, I just can't put up with this anymore. This shouldn't be happening to me. You ever think like that? I mean, anybody? All right, okay, a few honest people here. Uh, you can confess that sin later. But anyway, um, you know, I, I do think like that. Sometimes I think like that. And, and you know what those thoughts are? That's sin. Thinking that way is a form of slavery. Slavery to the lies that I'm telling myself because what does God say? God tells me I can do all things through Christ's strength of me. God says that with a temptation, God provides a way of escape. Now, this week I had my own little Becky Pippert moment. So I, I'm, I've been doing the CBR Journal, which I think is the best Bible reading program that I have personally ever done because it just focuses on exactly what we're talking about here. You're not trying to figure out what you don't understand. You're, try, you're just asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the word you're reading today. So I always start, you know, like Holy Spirit, uh, you start with a, a prayer of surrender. And so I wrote on Tuesday, Acts 11, Holy Spirit, speak to me in this word today. Bring my heart in line with the will of God for my life. So then I was reading Acts 11, and there was one verse that just kind of, I don't know why this verse popped out at me, but verse 24 was about Barnabas. And so this is what I wrote down in my journal. I said, Scripture says of Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. What a great epitaph. He was a good man, no doubt seen in good works. He was full of the Holy Spirit. That is, there was visible evidence that the Spirit was alive in and through his life. He was full of faith. Again, the people he did life with saw and heard him rely on the Lord instead of react to circumstances. Remember that. Father, may this be my epitaph as well. Show me what needs to change in me so these three character qualities will be alive and growing in my daily life. So I just went on with the day, went on about my business, and I get to the end of the day and I get a phone call and I hear some very disturbing news which sends me into a rant and a rave. And I'm like, I can't believe this. I can't, I have to put up with this. Like, I just can't take this anymore. Like, I mean, I'm just going on and on and on and on and the Holy Spirit kind of pops this little verse back. Yeah, I remember Barnabas. You know, good man, full of the Spirit, full of faith. And it was like, and I'm like, hmm. So am I acting like a good man? Mm -mm. Am I acting like I'm full of the Spirit? No, I'm, I'm just projecting out all kinds of the worst possible scenarios. A am I full of faith? No, I'm not even asking God, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? What, what do you want me to say in this situation? How are you working in this situation? Um, what are you trying to teach me in this situation, which I talked about last week. And, and so I'm praying all of this, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you, all of the emotional uh, crud 
almost said something else, but the crud just melted away. I mean, it just, just melted away just like that. And, and, and I, I was able, I was able in that moment to let go of all those emotions and lies I was telling myself, and I experienced immediate freedom. Putting the truth into practice set me free from the enslaving power of those sins. Anger, discouragement, despair, unbelief. Right then, I'm telling you, if you will do this, it will rejuvenate your walk with God. To say every day, whatever you impress on me from your word today, if you give me opportunity, I'll do it. And then see what happens. Now here's the deal. Some of, some of us have believed in Jesus for salvation, and you're hanging your hope that what Jesus says about death and eternal life, you're hanging your hope that he's telling you the truth, and you believe it's true, but in your daily life, not so much. So when Jesus says, if someone wants your shirt, give them your coat as well, we're not sure that that's really the way that we should live. I mean, we think that life is found in holding on to our stuff, not holding fast to Jesus' teaching about being generous. And Becky Pepper makes, she, when she talks about this, she says, I'm not saying that, that that's the application. Anytime somebody tries to rob you, you just give it to them. She's not saying that. I'm not saying that. But how generous are we? Or when Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Well, we go right on worrying. I mean, well, every, everybody worries, right? And just because Jesus says hakuna matata, that doesn't mean <laughs> that we just stop worrying. When Jesus says, if you find yourself in a conflict with a brother and sister in Christ, go and be reconciled, but we say, well, obviously, <laughs> yeah, I hear that. Those are nice words. Those are pretty words, but, but they're not practical. Like, Jesus would not require me to go to her and make things right. Now, listen, as long as we do that with what Jesus says, we will not know him personally as truth and we will continue to live in bondage. That is exactly what he's talking about in this passage. But the promise of the passage, the promise Jesus makes to us is, if you continue in my teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. For if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That is his promise, and the fact is, you're either in the process of becoming free, or you're living in bondage. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen over time. The question is, are you in process? You're either in process, or you're in bondage. There's no middle ground, there's no neutrality. You're either in process, desiring to put into practice the things that Jesus says for you to do, praying about the attitudinal things like worry and guilt and, and, uh, and, and anxiety and fear and anger and turning those things over to him. Jesus wants you to be free. He died to set you free. And he promises right here that we can be free if we put what he says into practice. So would you bow with me? I'm gonna invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any area of your life where sin has enslaved you. 
You might be calling it a hang-up or a bad habit. Just call it sin because it is a sin that has enslaved you. Just call it what God calls it. Pray, Holy Spirit, show me areas of my life where I'm in bondage. Show me areas of my life where I'm in bondage. Ask and listen, and whatever the Spirit reveals to you, tell Jesus that you will do whatever he tells you to do regarding that issue. If you need to go make something right, tell him you'll do it. If you need to pour all your alcohol down the drain, tell him you'll do it. If it's pornography, tell him you'll confess it and get help. If it's something like worry or anger, an attitude problem, beg him to set you free from it. Tell him you're gonna be coming to him in prayer like that widow who comes to the judge at midnight and just bangs and bangs and bangs on the door. Tell him you wanna be set free. Tell him you wanna grow out of worry. Grow out of anger. Grow out of guilt. Tell him. Ask him. Beg him. Tell him you don't want to be a slave of that sin anymore. And then whatever he tells you to do, do the next thing. Our Father, I realize that the words we've looked at today will have to be applied to everybody differently. So I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would lead every person in this room to know the freedom you died to make possible for us. Holy Spirit, will you deal with every one of us in a unique and personal way Show us the truth that is found in Jesus so we can be free indeed. And we ask that you would begin that work now. Amen.